0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: I hear they've given me a name. They're calling me the Ripper. Within the space of a single year, Anthony John Hardy had murdered his first victim, evaded a lengthy custodial sentence, manipulated his detention in a psychiatric unit, and being declared not a danger to himself or others, he was released back into the community and to his flat at Fort Heartland. Six weeks later, two more women would be dead, with their dismembered bodies scattered across Camden. Once he was nothing but an anonymous homeless drunk who was ignored, avoided and abandoned. But now, his dark ambition to become a serial killer was complete. Unlike his eponymous East End hero, whose moniker is known the world over, Tony's infamy was yet to be cemented. He was a nobody who wanted to be a somebody. But to achieve it, the next step was out of his control. So, who was Anthony Hardy? Was he a depressed alcoholic who was prone to manic episodes? Was his mental health real, imaginary, impossible to diagnose, or entirely fabricated to suit his needs? Was he a chancer who grabbed his opportunities? Or a cunning manipulator with a long-term goal? Did his addictions make a monster? Did his isolation craft a killer? Or was his sadism always part of his personality? The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known, even to himself, as he became a different person to different people at different times. But only by viewing this story from his perspective, is it possible to see the four sides of the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. These are the four faces of the Camden Ripper. Part 4. Tony the Maniac Detective Chief Inspector Ken Ball later said, It was one of the most disturbing cases I have ever been involved with. It has always been the belief of the investigating team that a man in full possession of his mental faculties committed these murders. Hardy is a dangerous, devious and manipulative man. In the eyes of the Met Police, Anthony Hardy was a sadistic murderer plain and simple. Following the discovery of the naked-imposed body of Sally Rose White, there was enough evidence of assault, premeditation, an attempt to conceal the body, and his convenient loss of memory, owing to an alcoholic blackout, was without merit. But with the murder investigation, usurped by the bungling of a home office pathologist, their case collapsed, and their only suspect was released. But soon enough, the police would be proved right. Mid afternoon, on Thursday the 2nd of January 2003, Tony was sat in an oak panelled smoking room at Great Ormond Street Hospital, a few streets from Kings Cross Station. Sprawled across a stiff wooden bench, wearing his shin length coat, black NY cap, loud shirt, and amusing socks. Tony smoked a Siggy as he perused the paper. His beard was gone, shaved to a ragged stubble, and although it was bitterly cold outside, with a persistently biting drizzle, inside the radiators were reassuringly warm and comforting. One of London's largest ever manhunts was underway. The police were patrolling the streets, his flat was crawling with forensics, and Tony's face was splashed across every tabloid. The papers would state that this mentally disturbed and highly dangerous man had been on the run for three days. When in truth, he wasn't running. He was in no rush at all. As all he had to do now was wait. Seven days earlier, On Friday the 27th of December 2002, Elizabeth Vallad and Bridget McLennan had served their purpose. Their bodies were rotting, flies were swarming, and purge fluid was slowly leaking from their bloated corpses, as their internal organs putrefied in the heat of this squalid little flat at Four Heartland. A total of 44 Sickeningly lurid photos were taken of both ladies, posed on the bed, lying naked, with all holes gaping, as they fulfilled every facet of his sick, disturbing fantasy, only with the redhead Bridget three days dead, and her porcelain skin mottled with a vivid hue of reds and blues, and Liz's one slender frame, malformed by the warmth of decay, into a purple bloated mess with slipping skin. For Tony, it was time to dispose of the evidence. Only this wasn't a race to cut and flush as much human meat as possible. This was slow and methodical for a very specific reason. In an advanced state of decomposition, both bodies were limp and easy to handle as he dragged them from the spare room into the white windowless bathroom With the cold tap on and the plug out, the fluids were slowly drained. The bulk of the Friday he spent dismembering the bodies, with a small white hacksaw and three kitchen knives with differing blades, some sharp for skin, some tough for bone, some jagged for sinew. But no bones were snapped in haste, as each cut was clean, as if performed by a professional butcher. But for Tony, this wasn't only about a sadistic gratification or the full physical control of a woman. Here, he was creating a myth. There are thousands of serial killers in history. Some are famous, some are forgotten, but very few are infamous. Having left 16 bits of limbs, torsos and heads to drain in the bath, At 8.04pm, he re-entered the Sainsburys on Camden Road to buy more bin bags. Where he aroused no suspicion, he didn't disguise his face from the CCTV, and having made his purchase, he even remembered to collect his nectar card points. The next day, with a roll of bin bags, a set of red-handled scissors, and a reel of duct tape, each part was bagged and sealed in his more spacious spare room. He cleaned the bathroom so it was white once again, and then he showered, scrubbed his nails, and popped on some fresh clothes. Conveniently, the bin store at Heartland was in front of his own front door. Only this wasn't about speed, as where and how the bodies were dumped was a key part of his myth-making. At 2.08pm, on the corner of Plender Street and Camden Road, Tony dumped a large black bag filled with an upper torso, a right arm, a left arm and a foot into the bin. Having stopped, turned and grinned up towards a CCTV camera directly overhead, and then calmly he walked away. One street down from his home, he slung a second bag bulging with a pair of ladies' legs. On the floor of his spare room, he left Liz's headless and limbless torso, all parcelled up, having locked the door and blocked the gap below with her grey tracksuit bottoms. And then, nearby, he disposed of the rest three feet, two arms, and both heads. On the morning of the 30th of December 2002, with a large police presence at the back of the college Arms pub. He shaved off his beard, packed up a small bag, and calmly, he left his flat at Fort Heartland forever. With three women dead, their bodies scattered, and his myth-making finally complete, as his infamy could never be guaranteed. Tony would have to wait, as the final piece of his legend was yet to be written. So, where did the Camden Ripper begin? Well, his homicidal sadism didn't start with Sally Rose White, Elizabeth Selina Vallad, or Bridget Cathy McClellan. It actually began with his first victim his wife. Anthony John Hardy was born on the 31st of May 1951 in Winchill, a coal mining parish. East of Burden on Trent in Staffordshire, to Kathleen, a housewife, and Cyril, a welder at the Swaddling Coat Colliery. As the fourth youngest son, alongside Barry, Terry, Christine, and Brian, it's unsurprising that, like most bullies, Tony would unwittingly model himself on those he feared the most. As his father was a large, stout man with a short fuse, a furious temper, and a thirst for drinking women. Raised a Christian, as a boy, the seeds of this serial killer were sown, as Tony was quiet, bright, and charming, but lacked empathy for anyone. From 1956 to 1970, Tony was schooled to Abbott's Bain Grammar in Winchill, where he fostered a love of girls, a passion for mechanics, and a deep desire to flee his working-class roots and although he could be chatty and pleasant to his fellow pupils, he despised his teachers, often dismissing their questions with a vacant look, very few words, and a need to feel superior over these authority figures. Gifted with practical hands and a methodical mind, from 1970 to 73, Tony studied engineering at Imperial College in Kensington, West London, where Tony met and fell in love with 22-year-old Judith Dwight. To Judith, having fallen for a tall, well-built man who was described as a perfect gentleman, in the spring of 1972, they married at Westminster Registry Office. In 1975, they moved to Bury St. Edmunds in Suffolk, where Tony worked as a factory engineer for British Sugar, Judith as a secretary, and their four children Sam, Ben, Emma, and Tom soon followed. In 1978, with Tony offered a great opportunity, the family uprooted to Hobart in Tasmania. But struggling to cope with the stresses of life, he smoked, he drank, he womanized, and the sadistic seeds of a fledgling serial killer began to spawn. Described as like a Jekyll and Hyde, for Judith, it was like living with two different husbands. As swinging wildly from high manias to low depressions, violent outbursts to utter blankness, Tony's mood was unpredictable. To curb it, he drank heavier, had many affairs, used sex workers, and yet to be diagnosed with onset diabetes. His unruly erections required harder sex To maintain his large libido, losing his job. For the sake and safety of their marriage and children, Judith got Tony to see a doctor. But as his anger and mania grew, being misdiagnosed, he was incorrectly prescribed with antidepressants. It was then that, being neither drunk, low, or elated, Tony would plan and execute his first murder. On the 5th of April, 1982, at 6.30 a.m., as the family slept, Tony went to the kitchen and opened the fridge. He wasn't hungry or thirsty, as all he could think about was his wife's impending death. In his eyes, He had planned it to perfection, as with no murder weapon found, he knew that he would evade justice. Having read in a true crime novel about an assassin's dagger made of ice, he adapted the idea and froze a plastic water bottle which had been used as a cooler for picnics. After the attack, the ice would defrost, and the bottle would be indistinguishable from any other piece of rubbish. As he swung the two-litre bottle, almost two kilos of hardened ice smashed Judith repeatedly over the head as she slept. It shot intense pains down her body and rendered her stunned and semi-conscious. Dragging her limp body to the bath, Tony thrust his wife's head under the water in an attempt to drown her. But as she fought back, she kicked, she punched, and she struggled to yank out the plug The attack abruptly stopped when their six-year-old son, Sam, saw his dad attacking his mum and screamed. Judith was taken to hospital with cuts, bruises and shock. And thankfully, she survived. So whether Tony's failure informed his further attacks is unknown. Did the sound of his neighbour's bath at Heartland trigger a manic flashback? Were his last three victims simply him enacting what he wanted to happen to his wife? And was his manipulation of their bodies an act of revenge because he couldn't obtain hers? That is unknown. But many key elements which shaped the Camden murders would stem from this very moment. Upon his arrest, Tony stated no comment to the police's questions and only spoke to flag up his alcoholic blackouts, his depression and his need for psychiatric help. On the 6th of April 1982, Tony was sectioned at Brisbane's Park Centre Psychiatric Unit, like his admission to the Mornington Unit. Once inside, with the charges dropped, his suicidal urges had ceased and as a model patient, he was declared not a danger to others or himself, and discharged after just 10 days. But as would later happen at the Cardigan ward, he wasn't diagnosed with depression or bipolar, but suffering from a cyclothymic reaction, meaning his violent moods weren't owing to a mental illness, but were part of his personality. Two weeks later, Tony held his wife hostage in a hotel room. She later filed divorce papers and moved back to England. And although a decree Nysi was later served, his violence towards his soon-to-be ex-wife didn't stop there. In August 1985, as they still lived together owing to their dwindling finances, Tony tortured Judith with his petty torments. He soaked her bed with water, he broke her secretarial typewriter, he stole all of the money in her purse, and for the last three days, before she finally left their matrimonial home, he turned up the radio full so she couldn't sleep. In November 1986, on the grounds of domestic assault, the divorce was issued and a restraining order was put in place. Meaning that Tony couldn't contact his wife or children in any way. He broke those terms, served two months in prison, and losing his job, he focused his time on making her life a living hell. 8th of December 1986. He harassed Judith with phone calls day and night. 11th of December. While the police were installing alarms in her home, they found microphones hidden in the vents. 14th of December, he made more abusive calls. 2nd of January, 1987, he followed his wife's car all the way to London. 12th of January, within five hours of changing her ex-directory number, there were more menacing calls. 19th of January, she got a postcard which read, Is is there a chink in your armor, I wonder, Tony. 27th of January, he slashed her friend's car's tires. 28th of January, he left a voicemail saying, if you persist persist in refusing to talk to me, you'll be sorry. 8th of June, he bricked her window and slashed her tires. 9th of July, he broke into her home at night, leaving a cigarette stub and her tires slashed. 13th of July, another window bricked and a note attached stating, This brick was was chosen with care. I hope you like it. T. The same day, five cars on the street had their tires slashed, and she received another note stating, To the the stars or to hell, the choice choice is is yours. And on the 21st of July, 1987, he broke into her home, boarded up the garage, jammed the front door, stole her friend's car, Changed the number plates and used it for a spot of illegal minicabbing and to harass and stalk his ex wife as she tried to live her life. On the 16th of September 1987, he was sentenced to one year in prison for contempt of court having ignored the restraining order. While on remand in Norwich Prison for car theft, a psychiatrist for the Norwich Clinic assessed Tony. And found no evidence of major mental illness, and that his violence towards his ex wife resulted from an intractable personality trait. Meaning, he wasn't mentally ill, this was part of who he was. Having served his sentence, on the 2nd of January 1989, he stole the car of his ex wife's boyfriend, and while high on alcohol and cannabis, He organized a belated New Year's Eve party for a group of sex workers, which ended in a high-speed police chase down the A134 and crashed into a roadblock at Thetford. Upon his arrest, he refused to give a specimen, repeatedly stated, No comment. He caused criminal damage to his cell and was sentenced to a further six months in prison. Hello, my name is Tony, and I'm an alcoholic. And this was where we began. In the summer of 1989, as Tony drove his battered Ford Sierra through the back streets of King's Cross. Within a year, he was unemployed, homeless, and diabetic. Over the next 13 years... He was arrested, evicted and sectioned on countless occasions, and having nothing of his own, he had learned to manipulate the system to get exactly what he wanted, whether a bed, a meal, an income, a flat, or the freedom to walk the streets, having got away with murder. With three women dead, their bodies scattered, and his myth-making finally complete, as his infamy could never be guaranteed, Tony would have to wait, as the final piece of his legend was yet to be written. On Monday the 30th of December 2002, just shy of 3am, as the urban foxes prowled behind the College Arms pub, hungry and shunned, seen as vermin by an uncaring society, another nameless scavenger, foraged in the council bins for food. Only what this young Irishman found shocked him to the core. He later said, I thought there were two big fish, like two big salmon. I opened the bag and there they were, a pair of women's legs. The press would later claim that Tony was only caught because the rubbish collection was a day late. But as anyone who lives in Britain knows every Christmas it's late. This discovery wasn't a mistake it was deliberate as how could Tony become an infamous serial killer if no one knew about his killings? At 9am the homeless man carried the reeking bin bag to the Hospital for Tropical Diseases on Kappa Street. At 9.45am Detective Chief Inspector Ken Ball was alerted to reports of suspected human remains. At 10am, the rear of the pub was sealed off and seeing the commotion from the comfort of his own flat, Tony calmly packed a bag, grabbed his pills, shaved off his beard and left Heartland forever. There was no rush, no panic, no fear. And knowing that his moment had almost come, he probably even stopped to watch. At 11am at St Pancras Mortuary, an autopsy by Dr Freddy Patel confirmed their worst fears. The legs were human, female, recently dismembered, and more than likely they belonged to more than one woman. a murder investigation was set up. The estate was cordoned off, bins were emptied, residents were questioned and rubbish collections were stopped, although thousands of tons had already been taken to landfill. No other body parts were initially found, but when the neighbours were asked, the same name kept cropping up. When the police arrived, it was as if he had been expecting them as the front door was open and the hall light was on, but Tony was nowhere to be found. Initially, it looked like a false lead, as although clean but cluttered, it resembled the flat of a depressed alcoholic who was blamed for everything. To experienced detectives, these seemingly innocent items rankled their nerves. Like the rubber devil's mask, the occult symbols the stack of sickening porn, the creepy childish daubings which hinted towards other victims, a scattering of scrawled letters written to sex workers, escorts, and s and magazines, all alluding to his depraved cravings, and a painted glass jar immortalising that first murder of Sally Rose White. But most of all, beyond the bleach and the incense... They were hit with the recognizable and unforgettable festering reek of decaying flesh. So pungent, it permeated the grey tracksuit bottoms which blocked the gap under the door and lingered in their nostrils. Having forced the door, the spare room was as Tony had left it a treasure trove of irrefutable evidence connecting him to the murder to the victim. On the table were spare bin bags, a roll of duct tape, some scissors, a pair of marigold gloves, and carefully positioned on the red rug, neatly wrapped and sealed, with the tools of her dissection placed on top, lay the headless and limbless torso of Elizabeth Vallad. The hacksaw held jagged nicks of flesh, the knives were still bloodstained. Luminal confirmed the areas of death, dismemberment and disposal, and the only fingerprints found were the victims and Tonys. The next day, the search expanded to the canal, landfill and the neighbouring estate, where in a green council bin on Plender Street, an upper torso, a right arm, a left arm and a foot was found. Bridget McClellan, was identified by her DNA, and Elizabeth Vallad by the serial numbers of her breast implants. And although an extensive search was conducted, the hands and heads remained missing. Tony was the police's prime suspect. With one of London's largest manhunts set up, the newspapers were given his photo and description and knowing his reliance on medication for his depression and diabetes, some Pancras and St Luke's hospitals were alerted, but they had already missed him. Tony was gone. Having lived for a decade as an invisible vagrant on London streets, it wasn't difficult for him to vanish without trace. He slept rough, ate hot meals in charity-run kitchens, and having shaved off his beard, Less to evade the police and more to avoid a public lynching, his days were spent reading the trashy tabloids, who slathered over the grisly details of his murders, dubbing him with a series of lurid, salacious nicknames, whether as the King's Cross Killer, the Camden Slasher, or the Bin Bag Maniac. Tony knew that his moment of infamy was soon, very soon. But until then, he would wait. In the mid-afternoon of Thursday, the second of January, two thousand and three, Mike Burrows, an off-duty policeman, was sitting with his son in the wood-paneled smoking room at Great Ormond Street Hospital when he spotted a large, stout man in a shin-length coat, a black NY cap, a loud shirt, and a set of amusing socks smoking a cigarette and reading the newspaper. To his son, Mike whispered, You see him? Doesn't that look like the bin bag man? And that was it. Security was alerted. The police arrived. And upon his arrest, although many articles falsely claimed that he fought his way out, with one constable losing an eye and another stabbed, In truth, he was calm and polite. The wait was over. The moment had come, and as the officers led him away, Tony grinned and said, I hear they've given me a name. They're calling me The Ripper. (music) Taken to Colindale Police Station and questioned by D.S. Alan Bostock and DCI Ken Ball, their evidence against him was irrefutable, but their focus was more humane. When the DCI asked, I want to recover the heads, not for me, for the families, what can you do for me, Tony? Being a sadist, with a hatred of authority and a need to furnish his myth, as he did with every question, Tony replied, No comment. On Tuesday, the 25th of November 2003, at the Old Bailey, 52 year old Anthony John Hardy pleaded guilty to the brutal murders of Sally Rose White, Elizabeth Selina Vallad, and Bridget Cathy McClellan, and was sentenced to three life sentences. In May 2010, this was extended to a whole life tariff. No one knows why he pleaded guilty. It's unlikely he did it to spare the families the agony of hearing the evidence. More likely is that, with an insatiable press perched in the gallery, he knew that the little they heard, the moral mystique would surround this infamous British serial killer known as the Camden Ripper. Very little was written about this case, and although the supposedly accidental death of Sally Rose White, was overruled and the pathologist, Dr. Freddie Patel, was dismissed, the most conclusive public review of this case was into the treatment of Anthony Hardy as a mental health patient under the care of Camden Council. Held at Broadmoor psychiatric prison and later transferred to HMP Franklin. He sought a biographer to write his story. He asked Christie's to auction off his macabre souvenirs and he even requested that his clothes should be sent to Madame Tussauds so his effigy could stand in the Chamber of Horrors next to Dr. Crippen and Reg Christie. On the 26th of November 2020, Anthony John Hardy died of sepsis in prison. His face is hardly known. His crimes are rarely discussed. There are very few biographies in his name, and having died just two weeks earlier, his demise was usurped by a vastly more infamous serial killer, the Yorkshire Ripper. So as much as he craved infamy, dead or alive, the Camden Ripper has almost been forgotten. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. That was the final part of the four-part series into the Camden Ripper and the final murder mile for 2020. Across the next 8 to 10 weeks, I shall be researching the new season and I hope to return by the end of February 2021. But if you'd like to know more about this case, stay tuned for some more extra bits as well as a quiz, a bicky and a final cup of tea with me. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters who are Nick Ashworth, Dawn Ackrell, and Natasha Turner-Swift. I thank all of you very much. I hope you've received and enjoyed your goodies, and that you'll enjoy the new online goodies, which all Patreon subscribers will be receiving in January and February. Ooh. Plus a thank you to Lucy Barr and Darren DeRosa for your very kind donations via the Murder Mile eShop. I thank you. I have spent it on booze. And a special hello to my boaty neighbour, Heather, who I bumped into the other day. Only you know where I'm currently moored up for Christmas, so keep it a secret. Murderbar was researched, written, and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since two thousand thirteen, Bombas has donated over one hundred million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. Good, 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 good
1: Oh, Stretch. Oh, there we go. There we go, people. Hey, it's extra mile time. How are we all? Are we all good? Are we all happy? Are we all well? Let's put me. Let's let's put me tea on now. While I'm thinking about it, cord in, maybe. Yeah. Let's just open up. A, oh, there we go. Oh, it's a lovely day, so it'd be silly not to have uh, the windows open and get some fresh air in. Cool, lummy. There we go. Right. tea bag in. Sugar in. A little bit more. There we go. Good. That's it to go. Right, coming back. Core cool, lummy. Lummy, lummy, lummy. Right. Oh. oh. What do you... Wait, so we've got a tea on the go. And some uh, going back to the old favourite, uh Tesco's finest has a little star next to it. I guess that means you've got to check to see what they mean by the word finest. Uh four triple chocolate shortbreads. Ooh, these are the really buttery ones that you eat, and they're very buttery and oh yes. It contains wheat, milk, soya, and gluten. Good! And chocolate. Oh, look at all that goodies. How many how many calories per bar? I don't know. It's weird how they always do it this way. They always say per hundred grams. So you have to go in, you have to go, right, how many, how many grams are in a pack? And it's just like, it's like one of the cakes I picked up ages ago, it said, it said each serving contains like 300 calories. And I was like, well, how do you know what a serving is? Because it was a cake and it was uncut. So it's like, I could eat that. If I eat the whole cake, surely the whole cake it's just 300 calories so why eat a little bit it's just they they make it they really make it really difficult don't they anyway oh i hope you enjoyed that that was the final part of uh the four faces of the camden ripper um i've got a couple of days of editing ahead of me to do and then i think i'm going to be finished for a bit A little bit more work on murder mile and some extra stuff uh, then i'm going to roll out an omnibus edition of this episode because uh, i always do that at the end of the season so that'll be good uh as mentioned um uh, january february coming up obviously i've got no cases to kind of report on but for everyone who is a patreon subscriber uh over january and february when murder mile is offline i'll be doing some uh, interesting stuff so i'm not too sure what i'm going to do but there'll be lots of stuff every week to keep you entertained so whether that, whether i do so like some weekly q and a's or some live chats there'll be some extra videos of stuff which you'll never see anywhere else lots of new goodies uh, obviously, an advanced preview of all the cases coming up. I'll be doing some videos uh, at the National Archives, kind of uh, doing my daily chats where I go, this is what I'm working on today. Uh, I might do some Ask Me Anything questions. Uh, uh, so there'll be some interesting stuff on there. So if you are interested, you can sign up. You can you can support Murder Mile by Patreon. This is... This is I, I started off as something I thought just a bit of fun, but it's actually, given the way the w- year has gone, it's actually become kind of my main income now so it's kind of become quite important but for as little as three dollars a month or in real money that's two pounds less, less than two pounds you can support murder mile but you get loads of goodies every week and uh for everyone who subscribes three dollars and above which is nothing uh, i send you i it's it's worth about five pounds in total all the cost of it or it's worth about eight pounds if you're somewhere else because i have to post it miles away but it's a lovely little thank you card full of goodies and all the exclusive kind of fridge magnets and badges and stuff like that that i'll send you as well so oh that's all good just doing my water oh there we go pop that in let the tea brew And they have a uh, the patron have just set up a new thing which a lot of people are taking advantage of, which is uh, instead of uh, subscribing every month, or you know, you, you pay you $3 a month, if you subscribe for the year, you say, I think you say for, say for like 16% or something. So a lot of people are converting to that, it, you know, pays for the year, you don't have to think about it, which is all very good. Uh, so that's that. Uh, just a quick reminder because uh, I haven't got an episode going out next year. It's so a Crime Con uh, happening next year, June in uh london uh fantastic weekend a true crime weekend with like 50 hours of entertainment and loads of podcasters and loads of really exciting stuff uh the early bird tickets are going to end on the 1st of january so they're the 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 cheaper early bird tickets finish on the 1st of january um so if you want to treat yourself to a fantastic weekend of true crime fun and meet loads of true crime people and i will be there as well and many of your favorite true crime podcasters from the uk and overseas as well uh, there's a link in the show notes uh, and if you use as mentioned if you use the the offer code mile you will save 10 percent. and i send you goodies as well which is all very good We're all very good what's happening at the moment i'm stocking up on my christmas booze ready for christmas which is all very good so i've uh in, in my in my bow um <coughs> sorry the stern uh just above the engine which is always very quiet uh cold out there i've got all my booze so I've got some uh, some of the layer cake that I've mentioned, which is very nice. Uh, tiramisu stout. I've got some got some loads of different beers and lagers, and got some crisps and some cakes. And for Amy, who's coming over on Christmas Day, I've 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 already bought her her spiced rum and coke, uh, which is all ready. Uh, couldn't find any of that almond uh, Bailey's unfortunately. Uh, Tesco's didn't seem to have any. Uh, but other stuff. So we're gonna have a good Christmas. It'll be good fun. And my friend Collins coming over on the morning. So we're gonna have good bacon sandwiches i'm going to find some good bread some good bacon sandwiches some good ketchup You've got to do it properly good bit of mustard in there as well um and by the time you listen to this i would have had my christmas party so uh, uh it's a murder mile christmas party uh, because i work for myself i always have one day where i celebrate so uh, i treat myself to something nice and uh, do you know everyone always not one well, not this year we're not going to do it are we but normally people go out and they go Uh, have a Christmas party and they all get really drunk and stuff like that Um, I sit by myself somewhere watching a film but this year to treat myself it's been a hard year it's been difficult I'm going to treat myself to a nice big Chinese meal so I'll probably show pictures of that online it's going to be I'm going to spend about 40 quid I reckon and there's going to be lots of beers and I'll be groaning for the rest of the week about how full I am uh so that'll be good uh so by the time i've finished all my work it'll be i think christmas day will be my first day off which will be very exciting and then i'm gonna have a couple of couple of days probably a week or hopefully 10 days uh, of not doing any writing not doing any research i've got to do i've got to strip the paint off the roof for the bow and get it ready because i'm taking her into dry dock again to do some repairs so that'll be good which I'm all ready for get the engine service stuff like that so right that's all that was exciting wasn't it right gonna grab my tea oh, oh, just knock the thingy right uh stirry stirry, stirry 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 get the bag out oops right oh it's a lovely day outside it's one of those days where you think to yourself I really don't want to be indoors editing but I need to power through this really clear day it's one of those crisp winter days where it's bright and shiny and you just go oh that's nice I'd like to be outside unfortunately it's ruined by the sound of children children horrible sound right okay let's do some questions uh oh question number one What country did Tony and his family move to in the late 1970s? Question number two. What company was Tony uh, a factory engineer for after university? Uh, Question number three. Tony's first prison sentence was for what? Question number four. The Park Centre Psychiatric Unit was in which city? Is that a city or is it a state? Not too sure. Should have checked that. Uh, Question five. (laughs) Tony was raised where? East of Burton-on-Trent. Unfortunately, I can't call it a town because it's not a town. It's not really a village either. It's it's regarded as a settlement, uh, which is why I can't... Because Burton-on-Trent is a town, but Tony was raised where? East of Burton-on-Trent. It makes it very difficult when you can't... Name places. Uh, Question six. Tony's, uh, sorry, name Tony's siblings. There were four. So name Tony's siblings. Question seven. What were Tony's various nicknames by the press before he became the Camden Ripper? Question eight. What did Tony remember to do when he bought the bin bags in Sainsbury's? When he brought the brought bought, when he purchased the bin bags in Sainsbury's, what did Tony remember to do when he purchased the bin bags in Sainsbury's? Question number nine, following a, following his arrest at Great Ormond Street Hospital, which police station was Tony taken to? Oh, bless you, someone coughed or sneezed. Uh, ugh, coronavirus. Uh. 10 question 10 back uh, at the back of the college arms pub what did the homeless man think the two legs were right let's dive into some extra details obviously this was quite a full episode and there's lots of details that i put in there so let's go over some stuff that i may have kind of uh not been able to do fully in this episode unfortunately when you're going through stuff sometimes you know, like when you're writing or editing it sometimes you just think there's too much you, people don't need to know everything every single detail if, if there's quite a few articles out there which are just dull because it's drenched in detail so what i try and do is give you just try and find give you just the right amount so you don't get bored because sometimes i go through these these case files and i'm just like i am bored to death so it's about making it consistent and flow nicely and you know it's uh, right so anyway um Let's go through the stuff about Tony threatening his wife. So, as mentioned, they were just in the process of getting divorced. This was 22nd of August, 1985. As mentioned, he had saturated the bed with water, so uh, she ended up having to sleep on the floor. Uh, He he stopped her being able to work. She was a secretary at the time. He pulled out the fuse out of her typewriter. He took out all the money out of her bag. Um, I didn't put this in the episode because I couldn't quite make it work, but he went to her calendar and put a big red circle around the date of the 13th of October, which would have been about six seven weeks away, and he wrote the letters KL. And No one really knows what that means. Um, that same night when she went to bed, uh, he had left a Halloween mask under her covers. As mentioned, he's got a real fascination with the occult, and as mentioned in uh, the story, he used the, the, the Red Devils in that mask. We don't know whether it was the same Red Devils mask or, or what. Um... Around that same time, he had a girlfriend. We don't know the name of the girlfriend. Uh, But during that month, he continued to take his kids away for weekends. And, uh, you know, he'd keep them up late. They were only young. He'd keep them up late, forcing them to stay up until like 3.30 a.m. at a barbecue. And, you know, he was proven to be not a particularly good dad. Uh, 9th of September, he took a ladder from his neighbor's garden to climb through her bedroom window. Uh, Again, he took his children children to see his parents in burton-on-trent but by that point he hadn't spoken to his parents in years he gave no notice of their visit and they refused to see him so he could see that the um the relationship between even his own parents had begun to collapse uh as mentioned uh three days before she moved out of the matrimonial home he kept he was turning up the radio really loud so she couldn't sleep he was trying to make her feel as miserable as possible absolutely nasty little man um she put when she got divorced she quite rightly put a restriction order in place but he just flouted the laws all across that um the law required that he must not interfere or communicate with his ex-partner and their four children or enter or go within 250 meters of their previous matrimonial home of course he broke the terms of that um i think everything i pretty much put in about all the dates whether i'm going to keep them in when they're edited but do you know they're all in there uh like um uh, when the Suffolk police went into the matrimonial home after he'd been booted out, they were installing alarms, mostly because it's 1980s, they put in alarm mats, which meant that when someone comes in and they step on a mat, he goes, beep, 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 alarm goes off. They found microphones in the heating vents, which he had installed to kind of keep an eye on her. Uh, I didn't put this in because it doesn't quite make sense, but two days after that in the garage, they found a, a, a number of women's clothes and a women woman's blonde wig which was owned by Anthony Hardy uh which was found in the garage which no one can really explain that's a little bit weird um he kept harassing her with phone calls he kept following her around her car his car was constantly spotted outside her house even though he's not allowed to be there um he was following her boyfriend at the time her neighbor's um, even when she as mentioned even when she changed her number and made it x directory within five hours he'd found out what the number was and he was harassing her again uh let's have a look through this and just go see if there's bits it's it's weird it's like you see you see the kind of uh things that happen you see that he's constantly slashing tires as well and he did the same to his upstairs neighbor to do with the leaky tap so so as mentioned in this episode I, i'm wondering whether there, uh, there is some kind of trauma for him going on there the fact that he couldn't murder his wife, uh, so slashing the tires is kind of his way to get back at her. And because I, that's why I kind of made that connection with the, uh, do you know, the attempt to murder his wife in the bath, the leaking bath of the upstairs neighbor, the slashing of his wife's tires, the slashing of his neighbor's tires. There seems to be a lot of connection with things like that. And there, there seems to be he because he can't get back at his wife, he seems to be attacking everyone else for. Uh, for that what else was there um, uh, we've got his first criminal sentence there which I'm not going to mention because that's one of the questions see I'm doing well now this was interesting so uh, when he was on re- remand at Norwich Prison for car theft uh, at the request of the criminal defence solicitors uh, he was seen by a consultant forensic psychiatrist from the Norvick Clinic which is a regional secure unit in Norfolk, in Norwich uh, the doctor's assessment on interviewing Anthony Hardy was that he could find no evidence of major mental illness. This is mentioned in the episode. Uh, in his opinion, Mr. Hardy's offending and his continuing violent and threatening behaviour towards his ex-wife resulted from uh, a a personality trait which was firmly based and was like and was likely to be intractable. So again, this is the same diagnosis as uh, back. Uh, when he was arrested for the murder of his wife, is that they they said, do you know, it comes across as a mental illness, but it's not a mental illness. This is his personality. It's a, it's a, all these mood swings. I think they said the psych psychomelic reaction, which they said, do you know, this is this is not his mental illness taking over this is this is who he is this is what he is as a person and even actually Judas, his, his wife gave an, an interview years later and her exact words were he's bad not mad and i think that perfectly sums it up he's bad not mad that's exactly who he was although he was able to play the mental health card he was able to come across as a victim he used his homelessness his alcoholism Do you know maybe they informed on that as well but who knows um uh, as mentioned 2nd of january 1989 this was interesting he stole uh his ex ex wife boyfriend's car uh, he claimed that he wanted to test drive the car uh, and he was that he was planning to buy it he copied the keys he later stole it and he started using that car for illegal minicabbing as mentioned he changed the license plates as well um for some reason he decided uh he'd fallen in the company of a lot of kind of prostitutes and heroin users at the time uh unknown whether he was using heroin at the time, uh, we know that he used cannabis and alcohol. And he, de- as mentioned, he decided to hold a belated New Year's Eve party for them, and that's where it all went a bit weird. He got absolutely uh, mashed off his face, uh, threw a large stone through her window of her house, um, and then he went on a bit of a, a, a police, ch- a high-speed police chase. The The police set up a roadblock in Thetford, which is just north of Bury St Edmunds, on the A134, um, They chased him down a dual carriageway at great speed. He eventually lost control of the car and crashed. Uh, He was said to be in a drunken state on arrest and refused to provide any details or specimens. Uh, And as always, he mentioned no comment, uh, which he seems to do a lot. Again, I didn't put this in, but again, after this sentence, he was reassessed by the norvik clinic by the the clinical psychiatrist and again they came up with the same thing that most vi- said most violence has been associated with mania and alcohol intoxication the most recent episode was associated with alcohol but uh the use uh but only equivocal mood systems again they diagnosed him not with a mental health problem but a personality disorder exacerbated by alcohol so it's weird, as you can see, if you go through all the episodes, you can see that it's kind of hard for everyone to pin down who Anthony Hardy was and even what his mental health problems were. Because, he, you know, with mental health, it's not, it's not, like, it's not like if you've got uh, a blood disorder or something, they can't just take your blood and go, oh, yeah, you've got sepsis or something like that. With mental health, a big chunk of it is kind of visually what you're watching of this person, what you can hear, but also it's what they say to you and if if someone you know is kind of open with it and they're like i feel this way and you can see it you know you can get a good sense of it but with anthony hardy as a manipulator he you know who to, who, what to say who to what person so hence some people would say he's an alcoholic he's a pure alcoholic and that's it some people said he was bipolar some people said he was a bipolar exacerbated by alcohol others said this is entirely just a personality trait others said personality trait exacerbated by alcohol Hence, he comes across as charming to some people. Hence, he comes across as evil to others. So it's that's why it's really hard to pin him down. Uh, obviously, uh, after he left prison, he had no more contact with his wife. As far as we know, there didn't seem to be any contact. Uh, he worked uh, as an uh, illegal minicab driver in London. Uh, for a bit, he was living in cheap flats, but struggling to pay his rent Uh, obviously being a minicab driver in King's Cross he got to know a lot of the sex workers, Uh, he really struggled to get engineering jobs because he didn't have a permanent address, he got depressed, started drinking a lot, high use of cannabis Uh, pornography, there was no real relationships with anyone except for uh, Maureen Reeves who was his friend and a lady who we only know as Miss Q who we met in the the psych ward and that's it really Um, let's see what else we have I didn't put this in the episode because it kind of throws the the story off a bit. But Tuesday, the thirty-first of December, two thousand and two, at twelve twelve p.m. This at this point he's been on the run for at least a day and a half. Um, So he had two rolls of films developed. This is don't forget two thousand and two. So digital cameras weren't weren't massive then. We were still in the old uh, celluloid days. Uh, So it's forty-four photos in total uh showing Bridget and Liz on the bed wearing the masks now um because they masks because they were wearing masks probably badly shot badly lit um, it's legal for you to go in you know, pictures of naked people as long as it's not hardcore porn as long as it's not too graphic, as long as you can say, yep, these are con- too consenting as, as adults, it's not really a problem uh, to get them developed. Now he went into his local shop, and the the local guy was like, "What's on the photos?" And he was like, there a little bit of porn," and he's like, "I can't touch it." But uh, apparently, he was able, Anthony Hardy was able to find uh, another laboratory. He were able to do it. It was said it was in Soho, but I can't verify that. Um, uh, so he did get them developed uh interestingly a friend of his who was called frank uh he took the negatives and he posted them to frank we don't know who frank is and the note said frank please keep these negatives for me at all costs uh he said the envelope contained 44 photos which he took a, fo- a look at um uh frank can't have been a good friend because he actually sent them to the police. This was just before the murder, but obviously, there's nothing really illegal about this. The police got them. They're pornographic. The ladies are wearing a mask. You can't prove that they're dead. They probably don't look dead. Do you know, they could be just two consenting adults. So they received them, but there was nothing they could really do with it. First uh, of January two thousand and three at five uh, fifty-six p.m. Uh, Tony arrived at the University College Hospital, uh, which is not too far away. It's on Gower Street, back of Fitzrovia. Uh, and on the CCTV there, that's when they first saw that he'd changed his appearance. He'd shaved off his beard. Still got the same clothes on, same baseball hat, orange bag, but they clearly saw that his beard was gone. It was down to a stubble. So they, the, uh, the police alerted the press and said, this is his new photo. And that CCTV picture, if you're on Patreon, you'll... I, i've put all the cctv images on there there's a lot of information on there if you've if you're a, C, a patreon subscriber whew, we've had a lot of photos haven't we there's been a lot of goodies this week a lot of extra videos as well so uh so i hope you've enjoyed that uh but yet yeah, um a, a lot of people still say that he he kind of changed his appearance so he uh uh, so the police couldn't find him. But if, if you think about it, he did want to get caught. He just didn't want to get caught yet. He wanted to be at the right moment. So he was waiting until the newspaper said, he is the ripper. That's what he wanted. He wanted something interesting. Uh, and also, with his paper, picture in the papers, he wanted to make sure he wasn't lynched. Because you know what the public can be like when they get a bee in their bonnet. Uh, so Tony was arrested. He was taken to a um, police station. Uh a uh, question by detective sergeant alan bostock and detective chief inspector ken ball uh as mentioned the police were there they got all the evidence they were there going we know this we know that Da da da. and uh Andy hardy was going no comment to everything which as mentioned before that's his legal right he's allowed to uh but um uh, all right ken said to him look uh i want to recover the heads because they hadn't that's the thing they hadn't found they was they'd got tortoises. they got uh, they got arms they've got uh the some of the legs but they hadn't got the heads and i think that that was really really important especially for the families as well you want to make sure that if you're burying a loved one you want to make sure that you've got the whole body in there uh and ken said i want to i want to recover the the heads not for me for the families mr hardy what can you do for me and Anthony Hardy being utter shit that he was. There's two different counts of this. One, he says, no no reply or no comment. And the other is, I'm sorry, Alan. I can't remember as I was drunk. Uh, that's him replying to uh, uh, Detective Sergeant Alan Bostock. I think there was two times that they did it, which is why there's two different versions. Uh, what else? Uh, as mentioned, I mean, this is clear from the start. I put this in as well, that uh, DCI Ken can, can, Uh, The the detective chief inspector uh, said, It was one of the most disturbing cases I have ever been involved with. Uh, It has always been the belief of, of the investigating team that a man in full possession of his faculties committed these murders. Hardy is a dangerous, devious and a manipulative man. And absolutely right. He was. Um... Uh, as mentioned, you know, with with the dissection, if he, if you go, this is where I'm going to do the omnibus edition. When you look back at the earlier episodes, he talks about being in an alcoholic blackout, not knowing what he was. You know, therefore, his hands would be shaking; he wouldn't know what he was doing. But when you look at it, it's, there's all premeditation there. And when they looked at how the bodies were dissected, um, even the DCI said Hardy dismembered his last two victims with considerable skill. Uh, whether this was part of his gratification or simply an attempt to hide his crimes we will never know but they said he if you look at the instruments they're not particularly good but he does it very carefully this is not a man in an alcoholic blackout this is not a man who's manic this is a man who's very calm he takes his time he he pops on his clothes he goes to the supermarket he goes to get some more bin bags do you know he remembers to use his he uses his i can't say that because that's one of the questions but we'll get to that but you know everything is clear and precise same with the uh same with the uh, graffiti on his neighbor's door have a look at that i've put it on patreon if you're a patreon subscriber have a look if not um I, I you can probably try and track it down uh it's neat it's clean do you know it's not it's not it's not a horrible daubing it's nice it's nicely written it's 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 vulgar but it's nicely written uh petrol through the letterbox when you when you look at how he did that do you know uh sorry not petrol the uh battery acid he got a battery he opened it up if if you've ever tried to open a battery sometimes it can be a real pig to open them up um opened it up he got a funnel he got uh one of these empty cider bottles he tipped it into there that's a little that's that's hard work especially when you're dealing with sulfuric acid kept it in there then put it through the letterbox that takes a lot of work so you know him saying oh it was an alcoholic blackout bullshit absolute bullshit um it, it, with this case the the, the police uh, the detectives got uh dr julian boone involved who's a psychiatrist to get his advice because what they wanted to know is what kind of man are we dealing with here and it was uh he's an extremely dangerous individual that was dr julian boone's uh assessment uh he said bipolar does not explain the murders the photos there's hints of necrophilia here um and the strong tones of sexual fantasy uh this has obviously been him throughout his adult adult life and possibly his adolescence um and he said there's a high possibility that there were earlier victims now i don't go into that in here there um there is a documentary out there with uh, Professor David Wilson, Yawn, uh which he goes into, which is a bit a bit weak. It's a bit vague. Uh but everyone seems to love it. They go, Oh, it must be true, because Professor David Wilson said it. And uh, I'm Professor David Wilson, they're criminalized, they've worked in the justice system for years. Yeah, whatever. It's just bollocks. Anyway, uh have a look at it if you want. It's not particularly good. I don't think it's particularly conclusive. Uh but I would say, yeah, if you look at him, there has to be earlier victims, whether it was his wife or, as we've seen, he did travel around a lot. He did visit a lot of sex workers. There's lots of uh, uh, rapes that occurred and uh, and assaults. So I absolutely agree. I think it's highly likely uh, that that there's more than more, possibly more murders or possibly more attempted murders, I would say, because there seem to be... uh, a need for him to become a serial killer by this point. There seems to be an escalation and a desperation. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, we got the trial. This was interesting. When he went to trial uh, on day one, he changed his plea. He he was not guilty all the way through, and then on the day he just went guilty. And it's like, oh, okay. So everyone had already got all their evidence together, and then it was like, no guilty, uh, not guilty. Um, I mean, he didn't have to give any evidence himself, uh, but this would be that, you know, the prosecution would be bringing forward the evidence. But uh, because he said guilty, uh, no one had to give evidence. Basically, they just had to go there to uh, check everyone was okay with this and go straight to sentencing, Uh, which meant that a lot of the details haven't been brought forward. The police have all the details, but obviously they don't have to release it. There uh, uh, There was no public inquiry into it, as Liz's family had requested. That was denied um there was an uh, a review into dr freddy patel and his bungling of the autopsy which was the reason why the the murder of sally rose white uh, was seen as an accidental death he has since been dismissed i think he was dismissed in 2005 so a long time ago if you look into the history it wasn't actually sally rose white's death that spurred that it was it was the g20 protests and there was a an autopsy that happened based on that which do you know he again said it was an accidental death but when you look at the video footage it was a policeman pushing this uh it was a news seller i can't remember his name pushed him uh from behind he had his hands in his pockets he fell on the floor and basically you know that was the end of his life um horrible bit of footage that is uh what else do we have i think that's really it not really going to go into too much because there's a lot of bits that were there was no connection between the victims at all as mentioned they were the only connection was that there were sex workers and that they had crack addictions whether tony knew them previously we don't know whether he met them that night we don't know uh uh, what else as mentioned yeah he's originally had three life sentences but this was uh may 2010 extended to a whole life sentence which meant he would never ever leave prison which is good so he became one of the 72 i think we currently currently had of whole life uh prisoners. Uh Dr. Justice Keith uh said uh, this is one of those exceptionally rare cases in which life should mean life. In sentencing him Dr. Justice Justice Judge Mr. Justice Keith said uh only you know for sure how your victims met their deaths. But the unspeakable indignities to which you subjected their bodies of your last two victims in order to satisfy your depraved and perverted needs I are in mean, no doubt. Uh, I have decided that Hardy should never be released from prison. Uh, which is what he said. So he got a whole life order. Obviously, he didn't live that long. Um, I think he was 68 when he died, Anthony Hardy. If I'm, I haven't written it down, but if I'm not mistaken... Um, what else, do we what else do we have? Uh Yep, yeah, there was an independent review into Dr. Freddie Patel's uh work. Obviously, as mentioned in episode one, do you know, the the police right off the bat were like, this is not an accidental death, what are you talking about? But the police are stymied by this. They can't do anything. They need the pathologist to say, yes. Like, if you look at this, this case, as we've just done, they got the legs, they took it straight to the pathologist. The pathologist said, yes, this, these are, this is... You know, this is a wrongful death. Therefore, murder—a uh, murder case can be established. The police can't just go, "Oh yeah, let's set up a murder case. Yeah, let's do that." You—you you need a pathologist to say yes. You can go forward with this. But because Freddie Postel turned around and went, "It's an accidental death. There's nothing they could do." There's a really good documentary out there. I think it's called "The Hunt for the Camden Ripper," and you can see uh, the DCI's face—how annoyed he is. That you know, he says, "Our job is to kind of." Uh, track down murderers and, and and stop them but you know if if someone comes forward uh, a pathologist and says there is no murder case there's nothing we can do absolutely nothing we could do there absolutely so you know um uh, anti hardy could have been stopped at that point could have been stopped right there but obviously it didn't because because of one person and then the irony is that when the police said can we have another uh, can we have a second opinion on this they they were unable to get a second opinion from another pathologist. They had the same pathologist, and the same pathologist said, "No, it's it's accidental death." So, uh, yeah, very annoying, very annoying. Uh, what else do we have? I think that's it. I think that's it. Yeah, interesting that Peter Sutcliffe literally died thirteen days before him. So two rippers died within two weeks, but obviously Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, vastly vastly more infamous uh than anthony hardy so uh yeah anthony hardy has pretty much become mm, nothing not really that much very few people know about him and in fact when he did die there was a couple of articles out there but really people didn't give a shit it's like the 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 steam had gone out out of everything and the air had gone out of everything because they'd already gone oh do you know yorkshire ripper's dead everyone had gone good riddance uh but when it came to anthony hardy they were like who Anyway, right, okay. uh, let's do the answer to the questions. Get ready. Question number one, slurp of tea. It's going a bit cold. Question number one, which country did Tony and his family move to in the late 1970s? It was Tasmania. Question number two. Uh, what company was Tony uh, a factory engineer at after university? It was British Sugar that is a factory still in Bury St Edmunds, which is why they moved to Bury St Edmunds. Uh, question number three. Tony's first prison sentence was for what? It was for contempt of court because he violated the restraining order. Question number four. The Park Centre Psychiatric Unit was in which city? That was Brisbane. Question number five. Tony was raised where? East of Burton-on-Trent. It was in a, a little uh, village, inverting commas, called Winchill. Question number six. Name Tony's siblings. They were... Barry, Terry, Christine and Brian. Uh, Question seven. What were Tony's various nicknames by the press before he became the Camden Ripper? I mean, to be honest, there were loads. People were trying any kind of name. But they were the King's Cross Killer, the Camden Slasher and the Bin Bag Maniac. Yes, tabloid papers. Don't you just love them? Question eight. What did Tony remember to do when he purchased the bin bags in Sainsbury's? He collected his nectar card points. Nectar card points are just kind of, if you don't, I don't know whether everyone has them, but they're just kind of like a point system. And every time you you make a purchase, you get some points and then you can buy things with it. Uh, Question nine. Following his arrest at Great Ormond Street Hospital, which police station was Tony taken to? that was collindale police station uh which is up in hendon on uh up in edgware uh, it's part of the police training college oh and question 10 uh at the back of the college arms pub what did the homeless man think the two legs were he said they were like two big fishes like two big salmon that was his exact words and that's exactly how he sounded as well because that impression was amazing right that's me done hope you all enjoyed that that was good fun that's the final episode of murder mile for the year we got the omnis, omni om I was going to say omnipotent version the omnibus edition coming out i might put it out today i might put it out tomorrow and there's a secret ooh a secret special episode coming out tomorrow on christmas day it's just a just a, a christmas blessing to you all so that's it that's murder mar for the year god i can't wait to have a rest and sleep in that's gonna be so good anyway that's me done uh have yourself a good week have yourself a good christmas and a new and a good new year and i hope next year is good and don't forget even if next year's not good this year has been shit so in comparison, next year, ah, great. Do you know, even if even if next year's shit, it'd still be better than this year because this year has been utter shit. So there we go. Have yourself a good week. Be good. Have lots of fun. Get pissed. Yeah. And eat lots of cake. Uh, lots of love. Speak to you all soon.
0: Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?